Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You're on Team Human, where we challenge the operating systems driving our society, reveal the embedded codes, and share strategies for sustainable living, economic justice, and preservation of the quirky nooks and crannies that make people so much more than mere programs. This is where the conscious beats the automatic, an intervention by people on behalf of people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, the host of the podcast, It's All Happening, Zach Leary. Keeping that cognitive dissonance out there, it's super, super important because as we've now seen in less than a week, this is not normal. My good friend Zach and I will be talking about maintaining one's humanity in the face of everything but. It's time to intervene on behalf of people. This is Team Human. Gosh, it was um, 25 years ago or so when my, uh, I guess my associations with cyberdelic early internet culture uh, got me connected with uh, Timothy Leary, the godfather of LSD and former Harvard professor and psychologist. And um, he was fascinated by computers, by digital technology. You know, he was one of the uh, one of the first people to argue that someday we'd all be, you know, using uh, word processors to send messages to one another and to, to socialize. You know, he just laughed off many panels for arguing that we would all have computers someday. But, um, you know, he and, and a bunch of us saw what was coming once we had really played with the Internet and experienced connectivity. And I remember uh, Timothy once saying that the Internet would be like LSD, that it's the next LSD, bigger than LSD. And uh, we laughed, but, you know, we, we understood what he meant, uh, culturally at least, because, you know, early computer culture, uh, the people who were involved in it, and I mean by early computer, I mean early uh, networked computer culture, really, after 1988, 89, it was very weird, wonderful people who were interested in computers because, you know, they saw in computers and networking this very, uh, you know, connecting, holistic, LSD-like possibility for a society. You know, a lot of them were acid heads. They really already were. They were members of the psychedelic community who kind of first recognized the almost hallucinatory uh, potential of digital technology. And they're the ones who moved out to the West Coast and started working at Apple and Intel, you know, building the platforms that now we all use. And the that early computer culture was very, uh, I would say, counterculture, but it wasn't really, it wasn't against culture. It was fringe. It was, um, these were people into, into strange things, but they were extremely optimistic kinds of things. They were the the 1990s equivalent of, of the 1960s acid tests and Woodstock. 
they were chronicled in Mondo 2000 magazine, which was a, a compendium of uh, psychedelic ideas and uh, chaos math and new technologies and uh, even transhumanism, all of these, you know, new ideas uh, for how human beings uh, could live. It was uh, the weird, the culture of the, the fringe and the weird rave culture. If you remember raves, those were really the first cultural gatherings of digital society, you know, kids dancing to electronic music at a precise 120 beats per second, which is supposed to be the fetal heartbeat, you know, coming together to, to uh, make something happen, to touch another dimension. And those of us who were observing that and trying to help foster and build the internet, you know, saw the net as as continuous, really, as an extension of our humanity, kind of an evolutionary leap forward in promoting our need to connect and share information, solve problems collectively, you know, as a, as a coordinated brain instead of just millions or billions of individuals. And, you know, looking at how far all this has come, I'd have to say that, you know, Timothy was right about the acid. You know, he was right. But LSD affects different people in different ways. You can't just give the entirety of America a, a hit of acid and expect to see good results. Because as Timothy also argued, your, your acid trip is going to depend on your set and your setting, meaning your mindset and the setting of the world that you're living in. And for a lot of people, their set and setting are not ideal for tripping. So when you have a society that's essentially living in a, in a psychedelic substrate, you know, the medium on which we are operating is psychedelic in nature, they're going to get a bad trip. You know, the, all the connectivity that we were talking about uh, becomes, you know, unwanted intimacy and a, a breakdown of certain kinds of boundaries. I mean, what's a person to do when identity, gender become a matter of choice? You know, you're going to freak out, which is what a lot of people have done. You know, you're going to freak out against the seemingly, you know, cosmopolitan, global, connecting, everybody can do whatever they want sort of relativism that's, that's engendered by the net. So what do you do if you're freaking out and having a bad trip? Well, you're going to start to figure out how can you make the internet instead of something that uh, uh, costs you identity, that costs you uh, your sense of, of difference or intransigence, something that promotes it. So people, certainly people in power, control freaks who didn't want to lose it, started to see the internet as the ultimate tool for surveillance and control. You know, if you look right to today, you know, Brexit and Trump, the, 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 Advocates, the people uh, uh, promoting both Brexit and Trump used Cambridge Analytica and its parent company, SCL Group, to do, you know, big data analysis, to conjure ads and articles that were targeted individually based on their big data profiles of you know, millions and millions of people. And plus, they gain the ability to identify and then track opponents. You know, these are, are uh, this is a big data company that's using your likes. It's looking at the fire hose coming out of Twitter and Facebook and using that to figure out you know, we've talked about big data before, everything about you, things you don't even know about you, your likelihood to vote one way or another way, what kind of picture of Hillary Clinton might make you kind of less enthusiastic about her than you were and get you to vote even for the Green Party or something other than her. And in this paranoid digital bad trip, resistance is futile. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. I don't mean opposition is futile, but resistance. Resistance is futile. Resistance 
the word itself, think of resistors. Resistance is of, a, you know, of an electronic age, not a digital age. Resistance attenuates something. It lessens it. That's what you do with electricity or volume. You, you lessen it. In digital, there is no attenuation. You don't get to slowly modify something. To get that, we'd have to return to the analog, to the organic that has shades of gray, that has many different colors, that, that doesn't have stop, start, zero ones, that's not digital. It's bodies in space that can actually do more than just resist. Sure, they can resist with their slogans. They can resist with their signs. But, but the bodies in space, they can oppose. They can oppose because they exist. They are here. They are standing against. And it's bodies in space. It's people actually connecting with one another that serves as the very best refutation of this you know, fear-based self-preservation that our leaders are doing now at the expense of the greater organism, Team Human. We're Team Human, coming to you alive from the Basement Laboratory for Digital Humanism at CUNY Queens College and online at teamhuman.fm. Playing for us today, the host of It's All Happening, Zach Leary. I've been thinking, uh, and, and you know, the emergence of your podcasting was, was in some ways a k- k- good kick in the butt for me. Yeah. With podcasting, in some ways, podcasting feels like the the killer app of the internet. <laughs> it, it is the killer app of the internet, but it's also what I what I love so much about it is it's also a return to humanity because it's this thing that like you know here we are having a long form conversation without looking at our phones every second without being distracted by the you know seductions of the material world and we're having like where else do we sit down and have a you know a 1 to 2 hour conversation with someone like a you know very focused conversation about very specific you know nuanced topics and here we are doing it which is kind of, you know, that's, it's the campfire. It's the return of the campfire, but it's digital. So it's like this digital killer app campfire thing. And I just right. love the mix of the two worlds. I, I find it fascinating. Yeah. I mean, I, I think the same way. It's, I mean, for me, the mix is you, at, on the one hand, you get audio and voice, which is the most intimate of any medium, you know, voice and sound are so much more intimate than, uh, you know, pictures on websites, which are so opaque, you know, this is, we could be on speakers in somebody's room or even on earbuds, we're moving around things in people's heads where it's yeah. physical <laughs> and intimate and, and high bandwidth in that way. And, you know, it's got spectrum to it. But then on the other hand, the digital part is it's totally asynchronous and point to point, you know, we can do this now, they can get it when they want. So it's leveraging what works about digital without kind of falling prey to the disconnecting qualities of the digital. Yeah, 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 for sure. I mean, it it is all of those things. It's asynchronous in the way that, you know, uh, you know, previously, you know, like the gatekeepers of media and entertainment, it's very much like fixated on a grid, like Thursday night at eight, this is prime time. This is where you're going to get the good content, you know, right. and now it's, well, you're going to get it whenever you want. It's right. up to you. You can experience the good content whenever you want. And even, you know, the traditional gatekeepers of the past, even they've acquiesced to that. Like Thursday at eight doesn't really matter as much. I mean, HBO kind of is, you know, their Sunday night thing is kind of still kind of a thing with Game of Thrones or whatever. But generally, yeah, it's it's whenever you want it to be. Yeah, you know, uh, uh... On the darker side, sometimes I wonder, okay, you know, the media entities, the big corporations, they've seeded content to us. So we can all make whatever little podcast we want, but mm-hmm. is that because they've gained a greater competency? Do they control some do they mm-hmm. control the context in which our content happens? 
Hmm. You know, are, are we circumscribed somehow so that no matter what we say on our little podcasts, however revolutionary our mind grenades, you know, however, you know, viral our mimetic constructs, are they are they just kind of pissing in the wind because they're part of this just giant, uh, you know, that we're essentially that we're doing radio in an era that is now dictated by Twitter and Facebook and other real other digital media. Yeah. Well, hmm, I, I don't think so, because, uh, you know, the, the economy behind podcasting, it's, you know, it's getting pretty large. It's it's an entire like cottage industry unto itself. And some of the bigger podcasts, you know, they make a lot of money. And I do think that there's, you know, probably within like traditional media agencies, there's probably like a, a an oh shit, oh my God, we missed the train on that. But then again, you know, NPR, some of the biggest podcasts are the NPR shows. You know, mm-hmm. so, because they they saw that opportunity, and and it's weird because the, all they did, all the NPR podcasts did, was turn on demand browser content into a podcast. There's almost no difference, but they created an economic ecosystem within it. So I don't know. I, I, it's an interesting it's, it's it's an interesting question. I'm, I'm not sure where it's gonna where it's going to end up. We'll see. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, something else we were talking about on your podcast last week was uh, uh, this this notion that digital media and its digital landscape, you know, like like Tim, Timothy Larry suggested that these are deeply psychedelic media. You know, he really thought of the computer as this is the next psychedelic. And once everybody's on this, then we'll have the psychedelic time. But it feels as if our society was unprepared for the psychedelic quality of these media, you know, and and that's why they're so freaked out. That's why they're having this kind of bad trip. They don't they they don't know how to negotiate this new connectivity. Mm, yeah, they weren't prepared for the rush. I don't think, and you know, and I still find like it's that that quality of like you know when you're on an acid trip that kind of incongruous, asynchronous sort of like thought pattern, thought tunnel that kind of goes when you're on an acid trip and you're just connecting all of these dots and creating this very interesting mosaic of, of your consciousness and your life within your head. I find, you know, surfing the web to be very, very similar. You know, when you're all of it, when you're surfing the web and you're starting off on one topic, but all of a sudden, you're just way down the rabbit hole, so far away from your original query, you don't even know where you began. And I think the similarities and, you know, and I think Tim was right that, I mean, he didn't quite live long enough to see the the maturation of, of the web, but his early inclinations around it and McKenna too, Terrence too, you know, they saw the psychedelic properties of that. They saw the maps of, you know, being very, very similar. They're similar experiences. You know, and there's similar places to kind of hang out and reflect on your consciousness. And both those guys talked about it way before anybody. And I love that about them both. The the other psychedelic quality of this of this stuff is um, the way that our social media feeds reflect who we are. In other words, I uh, I spent a lot of time you know going out and telling people, oh, your social media feed is being configured by algorithms to get you to buy more <laughs> things. Yeah. And to, you know, push you into your reality tunnel. and Which is they, true. Which is also true. true. Yeah. And they use past data in order to figure out where you're going before you know where you're going and market to you a future that you haven't yet lived before you've gotten there, all that stuff. But then I started to think, well, on a certain level, if you don't like what your social media feed thinks about you, <laughs> you know, if mm-hmm. you don't, then how can you change that? In other words, is could we use these things as uh, as mirrors on a way? In other words, can, so all right, so change your social media activity so that it is giving you the picture of the world that you that you want to see. You can do it. You can do it. You, you can break the algorithm. And, and I tell uh, you know my listeners this all the time in in some episodes and and blog posts. It's like disrupt the algorithm, fuck it up a little bit, especially inside my you know, world and presumably being yours too, Douglas, is we're for the most part kind of surrounded by progressives. I mean, I think, mm-hmm. right. 
Um, it's like go and you know click around through Donald Trump's Facebook pages and Fox News and Rush Limbaugh and stuff, and Facebook will learn. It does learn. It serves me some pretty strange content now that essentially, it sadly, it just pisses me off. <laughs> like it just makes me even more angry. But it worked. I did disrupt the algorithm. I figured out a way to do it, and it serves me content that it should not be serving me. You know, it, it does mirror this sort of segment of your identity. There's no question about it, but it's such like a, a, a saccharine small part of your identity, you know, like social media has given everybody a megaphone and therefore within that megaphone, you can create this reality of who you think you are. That's pretty sanitized. It's avoidant of any dark sides of sadness or pain or of any of like your character defects. It's just kind of like this, picture perfect version of you and you know and i can't stand that i'm always like trying to encourage people to share your pain share your life otherwise it's just a you know it's like a it's like digital disneyland you know it's it's sanitized it, it can't be that way so i'm a big proponent of you know share the divorce <laughs> share the breakup you know share your heart being broken share you know your spiritual aspirations share you know all of that it's 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 important i do i think so i guess if you're going to share it all if you're going to share it all yes 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 obviously you know i have total respect for people who have decided social media is not for them one of the things i wanted to talk to you about as as an adult now, it's funny because I kind of knew you. I mean, I'm older than you, not that much, but older older <laughs> enough than you to like that when I I was an adult when you were still a kid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, like yeah, you're sure. applying to Berkeley uh, College of Music and, right. and those I, sort of things. When I was you a know, teenager, right. You were, yeah. You were, right. I was like, you know, 30 You're my or adult something. friend. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Right. Um, and now you've, you've grown up into this mellowed, open-minded, humanist, uh, humanist person trying to help give, really, as I understand your podcast, trying to help give people strategies and mindsets for more effective, less violent living, you know, less and less distressed, <laughs> more conscious living. Sure. But you were raised on, uh, or at least largely, on the, you know, the Beverly Hills hilltop semi-mansion, you know, a nice <laughs> ranch. Yeah, uh, a, ni a nice with you know Noni Ryder and and Susan Sarandon and and Perry Farrell and everybody just kind of walking in as part of this bizarre. It was a, a part, uh, not just a celebrity parade, but this <laughs> carnival. You know that was that was in effect all the time. I mean, it did that. Did you go through a period of like being jaded about Hollywood celebrity, or you just it, did it just? Uh, uh, kind of make you just see more people that we think of as special, just as regular. In other words, how did that? How did that upbringing, do you think, inform how you see the world now? Uh, well, you know, it's a good question, and it's one that you know has sort of an element of reinvention, and the answer to the question kind of changes over time. You know, my actual relationship with like with with, with Hollywood and celebrity culture. You know, growing up in it and being surrounded by it, it did have the effect of demystifying it a little bit in the sense mm -hmm. that I don't strive to live that sort of life, even though like perhaps, you know, if I tried a little bit harder, I could have access to it. It just doesn't interest me in and of itself anymore, like, like, like it used to, in large part because Hollywood, the not just the place, but the state of mind that is Hollywood. It's very fickle. You know, people come and go. It's sort of like not a, a dissimilar anal analogy to like Washington, D.C. You know, what they say in Washington is there is a finite amount of power. And in order for someone to gain it, to gain power, someone else gives it up. <laughs> and, yeah. And it's just kind of this even this distributed ball and people are just sharing different parts of the ball. And it's very much like that in Hollywood. So within that, it, it that makes it very competitive. And, you know, and I I'm not a very competitive person. So it affected me in that way. And that sort of, you know, my long term wanting to be surrounded by that world. It just uh, it, it just takes too much effort. It's too, it's too competitive for me. 
I kind of distanced myself from it uh, in some ways. I mean, not not completely. I mean, I still live in Los Angeles. You know, I live in Santa Monica. I live uh, ten minutes away from the high school I went to back then. So, uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm not too far away from it. Uh, but then there's this other LA that there's this other LA that's in LA. You know, the LA of Adam Parfrey and Feral House, and you yeah. know the the yeah. Theosophists and the that weird little ashram place on uh, Sunset Boulevard. You know, on the West Side. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's this kind of occult LA that's sort of living there in a parallel universe to movie LA. I think that's what keeps me here. You know, because as I've sort of. Uh... Oh, yeah, I'm, I hate labels or whatever, but just, you know, I, I identify myself as being a spiritualist, you know, and maybe helping people start their journey on the path in any way. So L.A. is a great city for that, you know, because L.A. was the new new world, you know, in, mm-hmm. in the 20th century, L.A. was the new place. It was go west, young man. You know, it was trying to get away from the east. So in the early 20th century, uh, Swami Vivekananda, um, Paramahansa Yogananda, Krishnamurti, all, all of these these very profound and prolific spiritual leaders, Indian spiritual Hindu, you know, bhakti yoga leaders from India, they couldn't take footing in the East. So they came West because it was a place of, of really no religious doctrine and they could walk around in Indian robes and no one would really think that they were, that they were weird. So there's all sorts of temples, you know, you know, a lot of the hardcore Aleister Crowley crowd kind of uh, manifested in Pasadena. L. Ron Hubbard really like, you know, Los Angeles is a core part of the Scientology story, like, right. you know, essential and essential ingredient for it. Um, you know, Jack Parsons mansion is in Pasadena, Jack you know, Parsons. And of course, you know, I, I, I'm not proud of this, but like Charlie Manson, you know, like things like that. And so it has this, it has an outlaw slash spiritualist, um, aspirational culture because it's constantly being reinvented. You know, there still is no center of town still. You know, there's still no center of Los Angeles. You just kind of create your center and your neighborhood is your center of town. You know, so it, it's it's different in that sense than, say, New York or or London or, or, or something like that. And uh, it gives forth it, it's a good place for for new for new ideas. And, you know, the, the yoga explosion of the late 20th century you know, that, that was Santa Monica and Venice, you know, that, that was the fertile soil that gave ground to these yoga, these yoga centers and yoga teachers really forming what we now know as the modern practice, you know, that happened here, that, that was created here. Yeah. It's interesting. You know, I did this, uh, Alistair and Adolf comic book, which, you know, looked at, uh, you know, England and Germany and sort of the, the, the beginnings of, of American occultism sort of being imported from that battle, but it didn't get imported to New York at all. It really flipped right to, uh, you know, Jack Parsons and L. Ron Hubbard, who were, well, friends and enemies. I know that that Jack Parsons, I think, had a, um, he had a, a yacht company he was working on out there. He was building yachts, and then he would sell them to rich people in uh, New York. So they got Crowley hooked him up with L. Ron Hubbard, who was supposed to um, take one of the yachts from Los Angeles and sail it to New York for the customer. And then Hubbard stole the uh, <laughs> stole the boat. <laughs> he, he just went up with his girlfriend and went off with this boat. And so Jack Parsons calls Crowley and he's like, could you do a spell, do a spell on, on Hubbard to get the damn boat back, you know, cast something. So it was kind of funny. But um it's interesting, but I wanted to do a, a sequel to this comic that, that would take place in L.A. And that would, you know, all the crazy experiments that, you know, Jack Parsons, one of the guys who invented uh, solid rocket fuel. Yeah, he's um, a, one of the founders of JPL. And JPL. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Then, and then, but he's also like like conjuring the devil or something in the 
Wasn't he? <laughs> <laughs> After he was making rockets, he'd be working at JPL on rockets, and he's one of the early scientists there, and then go into the Thielema kind of mansion down the street and conjuring up the devil to make the rockets better or something. I don't know. But it's interesting, though. It does. It reminds yeah. me, though, of the early Silicon Silicon Valley days. I mean, and you saw all those kids coming down to, to your house. Sure. And these were kids who would be working at Intel or Apple or Northrop Grumman for that matter during the day and then at night they're scraping the peyote buds off cactuses and you know and having visions and getting warned by their supervisors when the drug tests were going to be because the companies knew that they needed psychedelic people in order to develop these technologies at all you know back to what we're talking about a few 10 minutes ago or so whatever i mean there is no accident that like you know that experience that I explained and that I experienced that the similarities, the the similarities between the acid trip and then being lost in sort of a web hole, there's no accident there. You know, there is cyberspace, not just cyberspace, but operating systems, you know, learning just like the, the physical representation of operating systems, moving windows around and creating layers and layers and layers and folders that that's the offshoot of the psychedelic movement. I mean, you know, the guys at, at Xerox Park and Stuart Brand and, and the, you know, the whole life catalog and, and, and Steve, you know, Jobs and, and all those guys, you know, they were all came from that. Right. So it's a, a, a psychedelic influenced metaphor yes. or yeah, vision. Very, very much so. Right. I mean, I think so. I mean, I, I, I still marvel at the way uh, GUIs are, are, are designed. I'm like, wow, that's that they, they got they got it right. I mean, that that works, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, at the same time, I mean, spiritually, it seems like there's, uh, and I guess in psychedelic tribes, there's this division as well. There seems to be the more Steve Jobsian Apple psychedelic vision of this is the apple, bite the apple. In other words, this is the a fuller expression of human beings on earth experiencing more. And then there's this sort of more Google extropian vision that mm. we use these technologies to transcend the earth. In other words, to do no evil on a, on a certain level could also mean transcend Humanity, because <laughs> humans are, this is evil. This is where we are. This is the only ones who have to deal with evil as a component of who they are is people. It's in all of us. You know, we've have a, we have an ongoing choice. Do no evil suggests that we move beyond human free will into a transcendent, perfected, post-human state. I mean, do you feel those, that dynamic? Like there, there's, well, let's just look at this extropian urge. I mean, Tim had some of it, you know, with the idea. He sure of did. No, he sure smile did. I mean, smile, and, smile was totally that. I mean, isn't that isn't extropianism itself? Uh, to me now, it feels anti-human. It feels like it's an incorrect or an inappropriate path to be pursuing. Huh. Well, I can maybe sort of speak for for Tim in saying that I don't think it was anti-human as much as it was augmented human. And mm-hmm. uh, and this is you know a lot a lot of stuff that that I talk about is that we're at this point now to where I feel like when we talk about things like artificial intelligence, we can drop the word artificial. It's not artificial. It's just an extension of our imagination. Just as you know, fruit that grows from a tree, you know, a tree blossoms and grows and matures and it produces an apple. Humans blossom and they mature and they produce not just babies. I mean, babies, <laughs> that's so mundane, you know? Well, that's pretty good. A baby's a bigger deal than a A baby's laptop. cool. A baby's cool. <laughs> I, I like babies too, man. But ba- but humans also produce, you know, virtual reality and machines. And, you know, and so it's, it's sort of like an augmented form of human expression to me. Now, I mean, we were talking about this the other day too, like the Kurzweilian theory, I think is more, uh, more based on, on, uh, it sounds like Obamacare or something like, uh, mm-hmm. re- repeal and replace. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think that's Kurzweil repeal and replace, man. Right. So there are kind of different, maybe schools or maybe different nuances within it. Like, I don't think transhumanism in and of itself is a repeal and replace philosophy rather than just an augmented philosophy, you know, which is very much Tim. Tim was very much that he was like, 
why not? Like, you know, around cryonics, you remember the whole mm-hmm. cryonics thing? You remember all that? Like he was like, it's the second stupidest thing to do in the world. But the first stupidest thing to do in the world is to let your body get eaten by the worms. So why not? <laughs> <laughs> you know, which right. is weird. I mean, it's spiritual materialism and which I don't, I'm not sure I, I really subscribe to it, but it's a great way to look at it, you know? Yeah. I mean, in the end, he decided not to do it because he didn't want to wake up looking at, you know, guys with clipboards, I think he said. Yeah. Well, th- those people, three three weeks before he died, you know, they were parking the RVs in the house and, and all the equipment was in the living room, remember? And I got it got yeah. creepy. It got weird. So you're like <laughs> <laughs> right they're big freezing they're freezing tanks sitting next yeah. to the nitrogen tanks yeah exactly yeah. exactly <laughs> that's exactly what happened so abort mission yeah <laughs> that, that's what happened yeah i mean it makes sense but but you know tim was into intelligence augmentation not an artificial intelligence he didn't want to upload consciousness to a chip he wanted to extend consciousness he wanted to expand consciousness into yeah. the chip, which is a very, a very different model. You know, it's, right. it's, a, it's a very different model. If you kind of subscribe to the idea, which I do, that consciousness is a disembodied entity that, you know, the, the human mind is really just the, the jack in, as, as he would say, it was just a way to jack into consciousness and, and experience, you know, your own version of it, which kind of gives you your personality, which gives you a little bit of, uh, you know, dualism, which makes you a little bit different than, you know, Zach and Douglas or see things maybe just a little bit different, but consciousness in and of itself is a disembodied unified place to hang out in. And so the chip, the microchip and and silicon and virtual reality and cybernetic dimensions are a place to sort of just um, expand that a little bit, just like psychedelics, you know? It's just a place to kind of pierce the veil and kind of play in other worlds a little bit, you know? And uh, and, and I love that. And I'm, I'm glad that we're, I'm personally glad that, you know, I'm, I'm of the age to where some of these ideas are really, you know, they're coming to life. I'm, I'm starting to see them. I'm starting to live with them every day. And uh, and I like it. I mean, what do you think is our job right now? What what do you, I mean, or another way to ask that is, is what are you working on? <laughs> well, what, what I think our job is and what I am working on, and it's in a way kind of the most cliched <laughs> sort of spiritual 101, you know, age of Aquarius, you know, new age bullshit in in a way, in the sense that we really are at a point now to where we must learn to have compassion and acceptance and tolerance towards one another. And I see that, you know, more and more and more. And I see the examples and the needs for that to happen, you know, more more plainly than ever, you know, the divisiveness that we are kind of creating for ourselves, even within, you know, different sides of different factions of the same sides, like even within like different factions of the left, you know, there's a lot of divisiveness and different camps and different ways of, you know, of of, of thinking about the solution, but the world's getting smaller, you know, there's no way, you know, we talked about this the other day, like the growth model, you know, we, we, humanity and nations and economies are still based on this growth model that it's just it's the math just doesn't work it's not sustainable there's no way that this can go on forever you and i are probably going to be fine you know i think we're going to live a fine life but you know generations after us it just can't keep going like this and the only way for us to keep going is to stop the madness and learn to love each other a little bit and learn to respect each other a little bit and stop saying that one side is like is on a moral high ground. I really don't believe that. So I'm working on just uh, ways of incorporating that into your daily life. At the same time, you know, you read the headline. I mean, I want to have compassion for everybody. I have compassion for you know Hillary supporters and Trump supporters and Bernie support everybody. And yeah. then okay, so the Trump people are uh, gonna build the wall and do the pipeline and get and bulldoze the Native Americans who are on, you know, Standing Rock and, mm. uh, you know, help help Israel throw, you know, this many more settlements and 
uh, on the West Bank. And I'm like, oh, shoot, I can I can spend some time and understand the worldview. Right. I can understand, OK, just build more stuff. We need more energy now and science will figure out something in the future. Let's just I understand. Let's just turn off the cameras that are, that NASA has that are looking at global warming. Let's just take any page on the EPA website that talks about climate change. Let's just take that down. Let's take the data off there because mm. data can be confusing. Data can distract <laughs> us from the vision of a perfect world because data is sitting there, this evidence of, of how we're falling short. But I've got a limit to how far down their reality tunnel I can go before I say, oh, this is the reality tunnel that's gonna destroy the whole planet. Yeah, I, I mean, <laughs> I, I, I completely agree. I mean, I do think there, there's a way to, you know, consciously live in both worlds. I mean, we you can still stay active and peacefully protest. I'm not at all subscribing to the idea of just, uh, you know, love everyone through it and just, you know, stay on your yoga mat and it's all going to be okay. Absolutely not. It's not, you know, I mean, we must stay in, in some form of like active conscious protest, even if it's physical, you know, like the, the, the women's march last week was great. Or if it's just intellectual putting forth, you know, great ideas like, you know, like you do in your books, talks, and, and now your podcast, it's just, this is not normal. I mean, it's incredibly not normal at all. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, when times were good, if we could even call when it was that. that? When you was know, that? <laughs> well, back when we would hang out on on the couch at Tim's house without sure. a care in the world. Sure. You know, sure. other than Great. that this guy was going to die in a couple of years or whatever. Those yep. times, it's almost as if we would, I felt like we would play edge games. You would almost, do you know what I mean? It's like, you might take a drug or something, but you would seek the edge in order to kind of challenge your. It was like there was a there was a not a not a reckless but a, a daredevil like quality to thought experiments and and vision quest experiences that you would seek out the edge in order to test your assumptions. In other words, you would you know what I mean. You'd walk into dark places of mind in order to see well. Now what? And does this still hold true? Now I find we don't need to seek out <laughs> those edge conditions. In other words, if you're going to seek anything out, the thing you would seek out is a zone of of peace, a, a sort of an insulated place in order to experiment with that state of mind. Because when you come into regular life, it's um, there's so much uh, there, there's so much rude awakening going on. Yeah, I mean that, that that's that's a great point. But you know the the question I have to ask that though was that um, a result of the times we were living in, or was that a result of the people we were back then? Right. Well, the people we were, the age we were at. Yeah, that's uh, what I mean. Or were yeah. the times actually that different? I mean, maybe they were. I I don't know the answer. Were they? I, I think mean, there was something. Well, or we, we were. Were we, we just? Were, well, we were among uh, uh, an elite, and I say that in a derogatory way, but, you know, we were, <laughs> uh, uh, we were among an elite who had early access to new technologies, new ways of thinking, to yeah. networking. I mean, when you think about who was around on the yeah. internet in 1994, you yeah, know, right. 1993, it was even then, I mean, and that was late. I mean, we considered that late, but you know, even yeah. then it was the well and dial up and you could find anybody, you know, you could email Terrence McKenna and Ralph Abraham and Tim and, and yeah, that's right. anybody and, and, and Robert Anton Wilson, just having made it online was a, enough of a, a barrier to entry that you had access to everybody who was on the net. And when we were talking about ideas about the way human beings could evolve using these technologies, or at least society could evolve using using these technologies and developing new models, it was almost as if we were, you know, we were we were measuring for the drapes in utopia, you know, yeah. and arguing about you know, very specific uh, the ways that we were going to decorate. Uh, and it didn't, it didn't end up that way. You know, it's, it's, and partly it's because we commercialized the net. We did, we turned over these tools to the worst of, of society rather than the most idealistic. But um, partly it's that people, you know, we didn't have the right set and setting 
to bring such a powerful new form of consciousness into uh, into public life. Yeah, I mean, it's, <laughs> I think you're so right. And by the way, I, I'm starting to work on on some monologues. Uh, my next monologue, or not my next one, but the one after that, I want to call "Measuring for the Drapes in Utopia." <laughs> I'll, I'm going to give you credit. That was, that, that was great. Um, I find it very, very, very similar to the psychedelic boom of the 1960s and that, you know, at, at the very, very beginning, you know, it was Leary and Alpert and, you know, Houston Smith. And uh, it's just these great people in, you know, in the early sixties and at, at Harvard and, and the grad students and uh, Ralph Metzner and, and, you know, West coast, you know, Ken Kesey and Jerry Garcia, but then, Everybody, too, is sort of not measuring the drapes in Utopia, but measuring the drapes in Psychedelica. And it was kind of a a vision for how we could live. And then all of a sudden, you know, what happens when Pandora's box gets open? You know, things get misused. Um, And it felt kind of feels the same. You know, I think the promise of the web, you know, God, back then, you remember... God, I have so many memories of those of like 93 through 96 at the kind of the dawn of, uh, you know, connected technology, you know, us talking about the well and early web pages and, you know, just talking about the promise of that. And it was so idealistic and so Barlow's manifesto for cyberspace and, the you know, it's just so heavy handed and idealistic in such a, a good way. Yeah, really interesting. Yeah, I remember that phone call right before Tim died. He did this phone call over the net. I guess it wasn't Skype. Yeah. God knows what. He it, did it, it with, uh, with like it, a, a Keezy, wasn't it? it I, yeah, it was um, See You, See Me. Right. Yeah, cover that. Right. Yeah. And I also remember one of my greatest memories of uh, is when Amazon.com launched. He was still alive. And we were it just launched. And we were sitting in his office talking about this thing called Amazon that's selling books, you know? (laughs) And it's like, who's going to buy books online? Like, what? Really? You're going to buy books online? And nobody, nobody got it. I remember like everyone in the room, like universally didn't get it. And boy, (laughs) here we are. Well, it's because the net was anchored in us as such a non-commercial space of ideas. And yeah. the idea of we're going to buy and sell stuff there. I mean, it was against the rules back when we got online. Yeah. You had a sign saying you wouldn't do right. it. No commerce. No commerce. Like Burning yeah. Man. No commerce. Yeah. But it was mandated. It wasn't just a culture. It was a rule. You had to sign an agreement saying yeah. you weren't going to do it. That's right. That's right. Yeah. I know. It's unimaginable. You know, yeah. in the in an age where we're about to privatize the highways and the bridges and the water. Uh, uh, do you I, think we're – are we going to go that – is that – going to happen you think with the, the privatization of of the web i mean do you think that it's truly going to happen yeah you do you think so i do i think we're going to look back yeah. on this time i mean it's only been 25 years really 20 25 years that we've had this i think we're going to look back on this the way they look back on ham radio before broadcast happened you know that oh back when the internet used to be this thing where <laughs> Wow. <laughs> for people engaged. But it's also because I, I think there's some illusion here that this are our, our, the fact that content has been liberated, that we can all now write and talk and do stuff. It feels like that's the competency of the printing press era, you know, mm-hmm. that's which we didn't get when the printing press happened. Printing press happened in the elites got the ability to publish books and make radio and broadcast TV. Now we have that ability, but it's the elites, it's the people with money that have the ability to build the platforms on which we do all this, the platforms that dictate all of this activity. So, you know, we'll see. We'll see. Right now, I still feel like the ability to say anything to anyone through something like this on a podcast and people can find it through any number of of channels, I feel Mm. like there's still something, you know, there's still something uh, uh, not just beneath the radar, but something uh, out of control of the platforms themselves. As long as we're not looking for money and numbers and hits, um, mm. we can still really do this thing. You know, if this becomes like Facebook, where you're really just trying to get, you know, two million followers, 
um, then we're kind of screwed again. Hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's that's a heavy, heavy thing to ponder, you know, because I do like to think that, you know, the web was created in a way like the infrastructure of the web, you know, I, and I think by whatever you want to call the powers that be, um, you know, it's still inherently egalitarian and the powers that mm-hmm. be can't change that. Um, I mean, I like to think that just because it helps me sleep at night, yeah. <laughs> you know, but I guess we'll see. We're going to see. It is. And mesh networking and other technologies are... are yeah, peer-to-peer and just... And, easy and enough. All, right. E- easy enough. And we're still... And we see it every year. You know, there is still a great idea that came from two guys sitting around a coffee table that can still rise up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good ideas yeah. can still find a way to, to take birth. Yeah. Or two guys talking on a podcast. Yeah, here we are. <laughs> So, you know, may the best of what we have trickle up to those who need it. So thank you, Zach Leary. Thank you, Doug, for having me. Thanks for joining Team Human. We'll be back in the Basement Media Squad here at the Laboratory for Digital Humanism again next week with new strategies for human intervention in the machine. This show was produced and edited by Stephen Bartolome. That's me. Don't forget to check out part one of this conversation over at ZachLeary.com. There you'll find his podcast, It's All Happening. My name is Stephen Bartolome, and I'm on Team Human. And I'm Douglas Rushkoff. Come visit us at TeamHuman.fm, where you'll find more information about our supporters and guests, the work they're doing, resources to get involved, ways to contribute to this show, and ways to find the others. Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.